In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. In the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, he says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. In 2011, my husband Josiah and I graduated uh, from this seminary, from VTS, and we were sent out into our own little piece of the world to preach the gospel. And it is truly an honor to be back. Thank you for the invitation. Two years after that graduation and this service for the mission of the church, I was still more or less minding my own business down in a tiny rural church in the middle of nowhere, Alabama, when our bishop called us up to his office and asked me and Josiah to consider coming to Birmingham to plant what he called a church without walls. Now, Josiah and I had only been married for three years by that point and in ministry for one and a half or maybe two, but we were wise enough by that point to know that while we love being married, there is no circumstance under which we should serve the same parish <laughs> and stay married. And so I showed great enthusiasm for this church without walls, and I got it. And Josiah has gotten to live out his dream of pastoring a traditional suburban church on the other side of town. <laughs> now, it was soon discovered in this process of planning the Church Without Walls, which later became known as the Abbey, that there was some disagreement between my ministry team and the bishop and his staff about what without walls means. My team and I assumed that it was a lot like Doctors Without Borders. There would be walls, physical walls, but we would go out into the neighborhood and we would preach the good news of Jesus Christ and his love for all of God's people wherever they were. Black and white and Asian and rich and poor and young and old, millennials, baby boomers, everyone without walls. Our diocesan staff, on the other hand, were hoping for a more literal interpretation. No walls means no capital campaign, no liability, no egg in your face if you're to fail. And as it all turned out, we were all a little bit wrong and a little bit right. But no matter how each of us was in our own hearts imagining the church without walls, the ministry stakeholders and I and my ministry team all agreed on one thing, and that was the type of people that would be occupying the Abbey. We went out and we chose a rapidly gentrifying urban neighborhood called Avondale, a place where the poor who have always been there are now sharing space with a growing population of hipster urbanites. We were not as interested in the poor as we were in the hipster urbanites. And our coffee shop church, we imagined and told everyone, would be filled with the intriguing population 
of millennials. Now the largest generation alive, and yet, as one priest put it, as rare in our churches as the white Bengal tiger. As we visioned and theologized and formed our business and ministry plans and applied for grants, this image of the ultimate millennial specimen narrowed and focused itself. The abbey was going to be filled with hipster millennials. They would be wearing skinny jeans and dark-rimmed glasses. And they wouldn't have any problem with the church as an institution, per se. They would be intrigued by it, but they would have lapsed in their attendance, probably due to their progressive views on human sexuality and their boredom with organ music, which could easily be remedied, easily remedied with a guitar or two and maybe a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> but far more importantly, these millennials would not be failures to launch. They would have high-paying jobs at local firms and distinguished banks. They would be devoted to social justice issues, and they would already innately understand the principle of sound financial stewardship to their new church home. <laughs> if the Abbey was only able to offer an enticing new form of worship, we decided, as well as maybe a killer Wednesday night Bible study that required no commitment whatsoever on the part of these millennials, our young adults would sign a pledge card immediately because all research shows that millennials will give abundantly to causes they believe in. What a silly expectation we had as our hopes rose higher and higher that the Abbey was going to single-handedly halt the decline of the Episcopal Church in Alabama. <laughs> Our dream of the perfect millennial churchgoer began to look more and more like the rich young man from the Gospel of Matthew, the one who Jesus calls to go and sell all your possessions and then come and follow me. He didn't do it. <laughs> in my work as the priest in charge of the Abbey, a new kind of ministry, um, and also my work on the National Advisory Group for Church Planting, I've been in contact with a lot of people who have a whole lot of opinions about the wider church and mainline Protestantism. And I've started asking them, what do they think the next great controversy of the Episcopal Church will be? Like, what do we have left to fight over? <laughs> Some suggest open communion, but I don't know. I, I kind of think that we've moved past that. And I've yet to meet many people who are taking blood pressure medications over that one. One bishop that I met suggested that lay presidency over the Eucharist would be our next great controversy, which seems scarily out of touch to me. One angry young priest offered that what to do about all those empty church buildings was going to be a more realistic answer, but that's pretty depressing and not in the spirit of this 
service for the mission of the church. <laughs> and then I heard one that actually did really strike a chord. One young woman said, you know, I, I think that the next great controversy of the Episcopal Church will actually be something to do with the institution versus mission. Institution versus mission. Both being cherished, interdependent pieces of our tradition, and yet the tension between the two of them may very well shape the course of our church for the coming decades. Herein is the tension that we live in when the church starts thinking about mission for the 21st century. It becomes the tension between what and who we want and expect to see inside our parishes and the sacrament that we want to affect outside in the world. It's becoming, as I see it, that pull and tug between the priests and deacons as professional caregivers versus the prophets and the social entrepreneurs of their age. It's the pull and tug between wanting to maintain the integrity of the professional clergy yet knowing that bivocational and non-stipendiary priests are what will help keep us honest in this age. The tension between wanting to save mainline Protestantism and restore our social and political reverence and be a voice of morality and ethics for the world, and yet also sensing that at the same time the church seems to be at her best when she is smaller and closer to the margins. And then as I spoke of with the millennial hipsters, right, somewhere in the fray enters this temptation of the consumerist church, the temptation to welcome the rich young man who comes into our churches with a loaf of homemade bread and a newcomer's pledge card and yet to send away the homeless person or even the unmarried young adult who has student loans up to their eyeballs with nothing more than a cup of coffee and a maybe a thanks for visiting, if even that. It becomes the temptation to depart and start ministries solely in homogenous neighborhoods that will quickly become financially viable and look good on their first parochial report, but not in other places where the Holy Spirit may actually be calling. The temptation to count our average Sunday attendance as a reflection of how well we have marketed and sold our Jesus product. So about four months after the Abbey coffee shop opened, two very cool and rich hipsters the kind we had wanted in the Abbey all along, right? Who were not interested at all in the Abbey. They bought a dilapidated building diagonal from us, and they opened up the Saturn, a neon orange painted spaceship-themed coffee shop slash full bar with liquor slash music venue with arcade games and a free cereal bar on Sunday mornings for those who don't want to go to church. 
You know, I visited Rome one time, and as I sort of think about those ideas, the Saturn, right across from the Abbey, it's, very, it's got this very Constantinian era thought. I am sure that the Saturn makes about four times as much money as we do, and that they were instantly profitable, that they offer probably 10 times as many events and pack enough people into their music venue to make any mega church pastor envious, even in Birmingham. It's enough to assure me that if our mission really is to provide entertainment and count the number of butts sitting in our pews, we've lost. After all, how in the heck do we market a God who always chooses love over power? But luckily, friends, we are not in the marketing game. We're in the game of salvation. We've been given this gift of the ministry of reconciliation. And it's our call not to market that gift, not to sell that gift, but to go out into all the world and share it. We offer the very best that we as a church have, and that best that we have is this story of Jesus Christ, our Lord, and a God who loved the world so much that he sent his only son that all who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. We've been given this story that tells us that every person, no matter how awkward or disabled or rich or poor they are, no matter what side of the tracks they live on, no matter whether they buy their coffee at the Saturn or at the Abbey, was made by God and has dignity before God. This is a gospel that tells us that that widow who goes into the temple and drops her two pennies into the collection plate has given more than that rich young man that we so long for in our churches. A gospel that tells us that we don't need to be afraid to face our own brokenness and vulnerability because it's through Jesus' death and resurrection that the whole creation is made new. In the end, the way that the Abbey community interpreted the whole church without walls thing was that we decided to open up this coffee shop, not because it was going to be profitable and not because it was a good way to market the church, but because it was the best way we could think of to open up the doors of the church for as many hours a day as we possibly could to get our clergy out of these stuffy parish offices that we love to hide in and out into the world. A way for a community who follows Jesus as our Lord to live our Christian life out in public, where we can welcome people 12 hours a day, almost seven days a week, to experience the life of a Christian community, good and bad, warts and all. Now, we've also found that there are tremendous consequences to opening up the door of the church for 12 hours a day. It's incredibly expensive. There's a lot of liability. And I've spent the last four years being summoned to present my budget and our monthly profit and loss statements before the bishop and his staff and our diocesan council, whom I lovingly refer to as the Sanhedrin. 
Second, once that door is open, it is open. Anybody can walk in, there is no buzzer, and there's no guarantee that the people who walk in will be the wealthy young hipsters that we so hoped and longed for. We do have a few of those, although most of them are so weighed down by their undergraduate debt that they're not much help during our pledge season. But right next to those hipsters that we imagined being there is a homeless man named Southside Shorty. He comes in about once a day, sometimes wearing different outfits, sometimes twice a day. He stands about four foot 11 inches tall and has this passion for sparkly clothes and women's fur-lined boots. So he's over there. Sitting at the bar nearly every day is Roy, a 51-year-old unemployed Southern Baptist who sips coffee and asks all our millennial-aged baristas what they think of pre-millennium dispensationalism eschatology, <laughs> which none of them has ever heard of. And then he moves on to telling us about his favorite bands from the 1970s, which again, none of my millennial-aged baristas have ever heard of. But we love him all the same. And then there's Jonathan, a social worker who is in education for ministry with us, who's off to next door to give one of his clients a serious talking to. And there's Casey, a recovering heroin addict who called me last Sunday to wish me a happy Mother's Day because he had no one else to call. And a young gay Latino man whose name I don't know who told me on Easter Monday that he never intends to go to church ever again. And yet he shows up at the Abbey every single day to get an iced Mexican hot chocolate and tell me all about his work with illegal immigrants in Alabama. And all of this, all of this is the mission of the church. Even more so than if we had filled it with a whole bunch of fancy, wealthy people. Because see, this world of the 21st century is filled with people who are pushed to the limit. The people who are bewildered, that we see every day, who are quarantined into their weird socioeconomic, politically preferenced Facebook friend groups, who are lonely, who are yearning for an authentic relationship with God and just to understand one another. This is the place for that ministry of reconciliation that Paul talks about so tenderly. And as the church, we can welcome that kind of vulnerability and bewilderment and not be afraid of it. We can build relationship by offering a stranger a cup of coffee or a glass of wine now that we have our beer and wine license and asking how their day has been and invite them into this this space and community that we call the church and transcends the chaos of their daily lives and sees meaning in all the crap that human beings have to go through every day. And we can only do this if we're willing to step out of those offices and out behind the locked doors with the buzzer systems, out of the church buildings, and maybe even out of the safety of our assumptions about who is going to show up and who our mission is to, and what success looks like. And there's nothing about that that's ever going to be an easy sell, or risk-free, or liability-free, or even guarantee success. 
I went back to the very beginning of 2 Corinthians just to see what kind of a mood Paul was in. And there he is admitting that he and Timothy were so utterly, unbearably crushed by their experience preaching the gospel in Asia that they despaired of life itself. So dramatic. (laughs) But if indeed the next great controversy of the Episcopal Church does have something to do with mission, we won't be spared the blood and sweat and tears that Paul went through. Facing the tension between the safety of the institution and the risk of mission is difficult and costly. So just to end a story about the Abbey, About a year ago, I was dropping off some books at the Avondale Library just down the street, and I happened to see a young man who looked very familiar to me. I recognized him from the neighborhood, not more than 23 years old, a millennial. He has a long, blonde ponytail. Most notable is that he was pushing a shopping cart along the road, and as I have found even among the homeless in Birmingham, pushing a shopping cart is not cool. He told me his name was Dimitri, which might mislead you into thinking that he is Eastern European, but he's got a drawl as thick as Paula Deen's. So I invited Dimitri to come hang out down the street at our coffee shop and promised him a free cup of coffee, which he took me up on my offer for. And I started to worry after a few days that I had made a serious mistake. I had to ask Dimitri to move his unsightly shopping cart about three times, first away from the front steps of our coffee shop, out of the alley the second time where cars have to maneuver around and park, and finally I had to ask him to move it out of the handicapped entrance so that wheelchairs could get by. Dimitri would ask only for half of a cup of coffee, which I soon realized was because he was going over to the creamer shelf and filling the other half of his cup with a small fortune's worth of milk and sugar. But over the next few months, the baristas started to develop a relationship with Dimitri. As we filled his mug halfway up with coffee, he started telling us bits and pieces of his life story how he'd grown up in a small town in rural Alabama, bouncing back and forth among his grandmother's house and many foster care homes, how his father was in some other small rural town in jail for the rest of his life, how proud Dimitri was of actually having finished high school, how his favorite subject was history, how his life goal is to get on disability so that he never has to work, I heard about how much he loves Donald Trump and then candidate Roy Moore. And he heard about how much the other millennial baristas disagreed with him, but he didn't really mind. I heard about Dimitri's history with depression. And then I heard about how Dimitri is gay and how he doesn't know what that means for his relationship with the church or with the rest of society. Sometimes Dimitri's bipolar disorder would get the better of him and he would start heading downhill, during which he would unfriend me from Facebook and write me hate mail 
about how he was never coming back to my church or coffee shop ever again. But without fail, his cart would be back a week or two later, and there he would be in my coffee shop, filling his mug halfway with cream and sugar once again. In celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation last year, we hosted a liturgical fashion show showcasing vestments donated from all over the diocese. Dimitri chose a brilliant purple chasuble and a mismatched butterfly-printed stole. And as he sauntered down the plastic red carpet, the crowds started cheering and whistling for him. It was the first time in his life, Dimitri told me later, that he had ever been clapped for. It was also the first time I had ever seen him legitimately smile. For the Easter vigil, we borrowed a thurible and some incense and taught him to be the thurifer. And when I got back from a trip just last month, I noticed that the staff had started teaching Dimitri to froth milk and pull espresso shots. So much for qualifying for disability, Dimitri. A couple of weeks ago, more recently, I was having my own very low moment in ministry, as I do from time to time. A few days previously, I'd have a rougher-than-usual appearance before the Sanhedrin, in which much poking at the Abbey's budget had been done, and some wistful comments had been made about the hipster Calvinist megachurch down the street, and why couldn't we be a little more like them? I was storming around because of this and also because I had just caught another homeless person using the Abbey's bathroom sink to wash his shoes and spilling all kinds of water all over the floor in the process. And add to that that, in fact, this particular day was a Saturday when I should not have had to be at work at all. And I was going to be spending a good eight hours helping man the Abbey's tent at the Gumbo Gala, an event that had cost us several hundred dollars to enter and raises money for an organization that is not the Abbey. It was, in fact, the kind of day that had made me start Googling, is it too late to go to law school? <laughs> and yet eight hours later, we had made 20 gallons of gumbo, the event ended, and I headed back to the abbey where the dust of the day was clearing. There was a group of young, recovering meth addicts gently strumming their guitars, producing beautiful music at the front of the shop. A few last customers were quietly talking and enjoying one another's company. And Jessica, the barista on duty, was busy cleaning the espresso machine, chatting with a customer. And there beside her was Dimitri, wringing out a mop in the blue mop bucket. He looked up and greeted me with a brilliant smile as I came in the back door, disheveled and depressed. Hmm, wow, I said. It feels nice in here. You guys are doing a great job. I'm trying to get better at words of affirmation. Dimitri looked up at me. Yes, we are, he said. In fact, we are literally the best thing that has ever happened to you. 
means. This ministry of reconciliation that God has given us is a gift. It has been given to you by God who reconciled himself to us through Jesus Christ, and it is our message to go out into all the world to preach the gospel. It is literally the best thing that has ever happened to you. It is literally the best thing that has ever happened to me. And for that, thanks be to God. Amen.